This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, this is Claire Campbell for the Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio. Tonight I am joined by not one, but two special guests. Uh, the lovely Maria Caneva from Arco Iris Learning, and later on I'll be joined by Shahana Knight from TPC Therapies. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Um, so, uh, this is my first show so wish me luck i hope it's uh, it goes okay uh, i'm claire campbell i'm the head teacher in um salford and yeah i love radio i love teachers talk radio and i really enjoy um chatting to people so we have the lovely maria so hopefully maria is going to join us have teamed up with the Witherslack group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free with lunch included and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for your voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash your voice 2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the teacher's health coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators. Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The TES magazine focuses on fears of a teacher trainee shortage as a report reveals ITT cold spots. The report in the magazine says the Department for Education in England has been warned that it must urgently tackle teacher training cold spots 
as analysis reveals recruitment issues across England. The analysis suggests that multiple regions in England face losing swathes of places on courses after a government shake-up cut initial teacher training provided numbers by a quarter. Recent results of the second and final rounds of the DfE's re-accreditation process showed that around 25% of existing providers could be lost. The teacher training sector is now calling for a pragmatic and realistic approach to ensuring trainees can access courses in all parts of the country. This comes at a time when the number of teachers entering the profession is falling. The North East is facing the sharpest potential loss as 32% of trainee places available last year are under threat. The East and South West regions also face significant cuts of around 24%. The report acknowledges that some new providers have received approval to start offering courses from 2024, but others within the sector are concerned that this will not fully resolve the issues. Providers have 15 days to lodge an application to appeal loss of accreditation. Teams of the UK's most talented young tradespeople are to begin competing in the World Skills Competition 2022. The competition, traditionally held in just one country, is, this year, taking in smaller events across the world. The event, which sees a UK team of 35 travel around the globe, begins in Stuttgart, Germany, on the 4th of October, and will end on November the 26th in Salzburg, Austria. The UK team will be looking to improve on a 12th place finish at the 2019 event. FE Week features details of the competitors and their areas of specialism, which include toolmaking, milling, web development and cybersecurity. Winners for each category will be announced during closing ceremonies for each competition, with medals given to those achieving gold, silver or bronze. Medals of excellence will be given to those judged to have reached world-class standard in their skill. In Wales, First Minister Mark Drakeford has taken part in an online Q&A session with school pupils. The session, hosted by the Politics Project, gives opportunities for schools to support learners in realising one of the four purposes of the Curriculum for Wales, becoming ethical, informed citizens of Wales and the world. Questions range from finding out about the politicians' journey into politics, climate change and whether Wales can indeed win the World Cup. And finally, in South Africa, the government has issued a press release focusing on the recruitment of 25,000 education assistants and general school assistants for both public and special schools. The recruitment drive is part of the Presidential Youth Employment Initiative. Education assistants will support teachers with administrative tasks, classroom management, sports coaching and cultural activities, whilst the general assistants will focus on maintenance, cleaning and general admin. The programme is part of a drive to improve standards within schools in the country, as well as increasing employment opportunities. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week is World Space Week. Space is such a vast topic, there's always something you can find out that could potentially be a hook for a lesson. The theme this year is sustainability. I only found out about Space Week as I was browsing the internet. 
This got me thinking about how amazing the internet is and how so much information is at our fingertips. This week, I'm going to look at finding inspiration for a lesson using information I would never have known about without the amazing technology of the internet. During my research, I've discovered that there are a number of websites out there dedicated to awareness days. I've compiled a list of genuine, official awareness days to motivate your form, classes, colleagues or even yourself from now until the end of term. In October, we have Buy British Day, National Poetry Day, National Kale Day, World Octopus Day and World Porridge Day. This one sounds funny, but it's actually to raise awareness for children in poverty in developing countries. Local Radio Day. To celebrate this, our very own Tom Rogers is going to stop talking every time he goes under a bridge. Still in October, we have National Roast Pheasant Day, UK Coffee Week, Apple Day, Global Champagne Day, International Stammering Awareness Day, World Tripe Day, National Pumpkin Day, American Beer Day, National Black Cat Day, and Wild Foods Day. There's not much information on Wild Foods Day, but if you do go all bare grills, please do let us know how it went. Ending October, we have RSPB Feed the Birds Day. Please feed the birds more than just one day. In November, there's World Vegan Day, National Stress Awareness Day, Roast Dinner Day, International Stout Day, and National Hugger Bear Day. I'd advise against hugging a real bear, however, it would make a very engaging lesson. Great British Game Week, British Pudding Day, Templiano Day and Zinfandel Day are followed by Homemade Bread Day. I think this is here to soak up all the wine. Still staying in November, there's National Gingerbread Day, National Eat a Cranberry Day, The Fruit, not a band member. The end of November brings us White Ribbon Day. Days of interest in December before we break up are Fuel Poverty Awareness Day, Christmas Jumper Day and National Hot Chocolate Day. The internet is an amazing resource for information. I hope you can find inspiration and motivation in your next search. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Last time that I was on Teachers Talk Radio, I was with the lovely Shahana Knight from uh, PPC Therapies, and we talked about creative classrooms, and we talked about therapeutic classrooms. So I first met Shahana last year and I was absolutely blown away by her work uh, and uh, I'm really excited to, uh, to speak to her later. So uh, thank you for joining. So far we've got uh, Tom Rogers joined us and uh, another listener. So I'm hoping that Maria will join us very soon. She's going to call in. Okay, thank you for joining us tonight on Teacher Talk Radio. So um, I've got some uh, questions coming up for uh, Maria and for Shahana. They're going to tell us a little bit about their careers so far and when they first started working with children. Um, I'm just inviting Maria in now. Hello, Maria. Hello. It's worked. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thrilled. Thank goodness you're here. Oh, thank you for your patience. I persevered and I did a little bit of extra thinking as well. Oh, well, well done. I'm really impressed with you. <laughs> so it's lovely to have you here, Maria. So Maria, please, can you tell me a little bit about your career so far? Wow. In a nutshell, I am, I'm a primary educator. I've been teaching for 24 years. Um, in the last couple of years, I've wanted to expand and do something different. So I started my own creative company. I um, I teach contemplative photography to little people and it's absolutely wonderful and I travel around the country doing some CPD and although my stimulus is photography, Claire, actually it's all about well-being and nurturing self-confidence. It's brilliant. I love it. 
It absolutely is. You're quite right. Um, so Maria and I have met on Twitter, but we then met in person when Maria came to visit my school, and it was such a thrill to uh, to connect with you, Maria, and to um, to put a face to that uh, photo that I'd seen on your Twitter mm. profile, and uh, to get to introduce you to my children. And she came a long way. She came a, a long way to visit us, but she brought with her. Uh, a whole carload of sheep. Uh, do you want to explain to our listeners yes. what the sheep were for? <laughs> so um, we were doing a session on um, contemplative photography with the parable, the Christian parable of the lost sheep. So I um, I bring my sheep into school and children, we have a, an imaginative um, exercise that I guide the children with and then I enable them to create some photographs. It's a lot of my conversation with the children takes form in I wonder questions. So if they'll say, oh, can I go here? I'll say, I wonder where you'll choose go. So it's very holistic. It's really growing the children's confidence because I'm not the font of all knowledge. And actually, I come away from these sessions, Claire, so enriched. They teach me and they enable me to stay connected and I mean, we're trying to fill our children's heads and their heads are already filled with some beautiful imaginative things. And, and it's about bringing that out of them and, and enabling them and nourishing them too. Yeah, absolutely. And the work that you've done with the children in my school and in, in schools all over the country is incredible. Maria, can I just ask you to speak a little closer to the mic um, when you talk? Because sometimes you're like popping in and out. Is that okay? Yes, I've got my mic right up to my lips. Is that better? Oh, yeah, that's so much Super better. Duper. Thank you. Thank you. Is that okay, Tom? <laughs> Tom's listening and giving me advice. It's all his fault. I'm here, you see. Um, so, Maria, um, tell me about your next project. What are you doing next? Um, wow. Right well, I've I've got a few projects in the pipeline. I, I'm I'm a big believer in doing some pilots before I launch something. So at the moment I've got I've got a few top secret projects, but one of them will be working with nature connection organizations. Because I'm really interested that the work I've been doing is predominantly in Christian organizations, Christian primary schools and Catholic education. But the work is so good that I want to roll it out in different places. So I've been doing I'm gonna start a pilot pilot in January um, to do with Nature Connection and Nature Premium. I'm also doing some work with some another organisation looking at the earth practices and that's something that's not been familiar in my life before you know so the autumn equinox, Sarwain is coming up on the 31st of October so it's similar to, um, to Halloween but predominantly with earth practices, people of long, long time ago that used to have these wonderful things that they followed the earth cycle, the seasonal cycle. And that's been absolutely wonderful. I'm, although I'm a primary educator, I'm tiptoeing tentatively into secondary. So I've got some exciting things happening with year seven and eight and a transition as well between I was a year six teacher for many of those 24 years and I'm interested in how you take primary learners into sec into being secondary learners. So lo lots of things, lots of things. I I'm busy hatching plans all the time, Claire. <laughs> yeah, you certainly are. So um, can you tell me what what is the rationale behind the work that you do with children? 
in terms of your creativity and um, you know where does that come from is, is that something that you've always connected with yourself I've I've always been a creative educator and I, as much as I've in I was a member of the SLT team I was key stage two coordinator I've been RE coordinator I've always tried to make the lessons as accessible and fun and diverse as possible to the children my clients my stakeholders that's the whole purpose of me doing it I think for a long time I I wasn't as creative I was just doing the job but actually what I'm doing now is really focusing on well-being I think we've all seen the results of the pandemic and you know it, it's left a lot of people um, really craving something that's different and I think that's what we had to do you know during the pandemic it sounds like very war spirit but we had to try and find a new way of reaching our children reaching through education and to make it interesting and and loving it i mean i do i also run in because i live in i'm based in southeast london at the moment and i do one day a week after school club and the children run i mean they literally run they they come out of their <laughs> classrooms and they're like they can't wait to get started because i'm teaching them although i'm teaching them basic photography skills focus background sorry i'm <laughs> interrupted by music now uh, and that was that was the the cue for me to talk faster yeah so although i'm teaching them basic skills it's actually all about their well-being it's the way that i talk to them and actually it's the way that they talk to each other so when i'm saying things um when i they'll come up to me and they'll show me their photo and they'll say is this good i'll reframe it and i'll say that's a really interesting photograph you've taken um what would what do you like about it is there anything that you change and because i'm modeling that with the children they then model it with each other so i'm encouraging them to say oh i really like your photo because can i recommend you go back and maybe change it so there's no buts you know it's not this is a great photo but it's it's a lot of that conversational i run the program from grade one to grade seven so it's eight weeks each time um they hardly need me because it's so beautiful i come in i share what we're le learning about i do some work with them showing them the skills and then they're supporting each other and it's such a beautiful way of growing children's personalities confidence and well-being i mean and nourishing them at the same time claire yeah absolutely absolutely and maria i know how creative you are and um you know your ideas are massively creative so can you tell me where that creativity comes from and is that something that you enjoyed when you were at school yes i all i mean i was in primary education in the 80s um and there was so much i think there was so much that i was given through my primary teachers they allowed me to do something and actually a big nod to my granny you know she would allow me to do anything basically i mean she had a tv in her in her sitting room that had a tablecloth over it and so if you wanted to watch one program like news round you watch that one program then the cloth would go back over it as to do something <laughs> different i mean this wouldn't surprise you because you know me quite well at the moment i'm making little memory pockets so oh, in the last few weeks i've been um everybody has a cup of tea i'm like no keep them and then i've just ironed them and then i've cut i take the tea leaves out and inside i've collected some leaves from outside some sycamores some anything and they're little nature pockets and I, i've got a half-term club with the children that i work with so that's on demand so i'm recording the sessions for them but yeah little it's so easy i don't know where my ideas come from claire it's um it's just i'm inspired 
and re-inspired by people all the time and children yeah i think because your work is beautiful and i i see it on your instagram page um our co-iris learning i see it on your twitter um would you like to share with the listeners your um contacts so people can can contact you Yes, so if you want to look at the website, it's www.arcoirislearning.co.uk. It's Arcoiris is Spanish for rainbow, and I love a rainbow. They're real symbols of hope for me. So if they want to contact me, uh, my email address is maria at arcoirislearning.co.uk. I'm on the socials, all the all of them. I'm on Facebook, Instagram on Arcoiris Learning, and Twitter Arco I Learning. I couldn't fit the iris in; it was too many letters. A bit like my surname. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and but and if people want to see your work um for examples of your past work um which would you recommend have a look at the website because on the website there's so many things that I've done if you go into further links you'll see that the work I did with um over the pandemic a radio station online radio station I did crafty cafe which was a a weekly crafty activity show for children I've done some work with the Steve Sinnott foundation yeah if you look on the further links you, you'll see everything I've done and it's constantly being updated constantly I've learned that skill Claire it's really good the pandemic was wonderful <laughs> for me <laughs> Oh, it certainly was. So, um, for you, what is your what's one of your favourite um, projects that you've been involved in? Oh my gosh, it's like choosing your favourite child, isn't it? <laughs> favourite project. I think the one that I'm doing at the moment with the transition, and and it's all about um, it's about fish. I've finally managed to collect thirty fish because I've got a box of everything: a thirty stars, thirty hearts, because you know that thirty sheep. Although I've got a few more than sheep, but yeah, the fish this year is something new, innovative. It's something that can support schools with that transition, and and it can go further. I mean, every time I try and write a new piece for it, I think of something different. Yeah, so watch this space with fish. Sounds a bit strange, but it's not fishy but it is something really helpful for children to to bridge that gap between year six and year seven. Oh, wonderful thank you so much well we've got another caller on the line so i'm going to just connect and just um uh, invite them to talk to us so just give me a second maria thank you hello can you hear me yes i can hear you who's this hi Oh, hi, Shahana. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so lovely to, to, hear, to hear you. Hi. Um, we were really blessed. So Shahana Knight is our main guest this evening. We're really blessed um, to have Maria um, Kaneda, um, who joined us from Arco Iris Learning to start our session off tonight. So if you just give me one second, Shahana, and I will uh, say goodbye to Maria. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fabulous. All right. Hi, Maria. Are you still there? I'm still here. I'm trying to figure out which button to press to log off. You don't want to listen <laughs> to me talking to my cat for the next hour. I'm sure I absolutely would. I'm sure I absolutely <laughs> would. Yeah. The lovely cat monkey. I've seen lots of photos yeah, as well. Little monkey, so, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for joining us at such short notice as well. And you've been an absolutely lovely guest. So is there anything else you'd like to tell us about before I hand over to Shahana? No, I'm really, I'm looking forward to listening in to finding all about this therapeutic classrooms. I wish I'd known about her when I was in year six. I know. And and why is it, why, why is it do you think that they're so timely, Maria? If you, do you think it is post-pandemic? 
the creativity that we need in our classrooms now. Well, if I'm honest, I um, I had a small sofa in my classroom for many, many years before I knew about therapeutic classrooms. And I was always a big advocate. I mean, I followed the Mind, the, the Mind Up program from Goldie Horn. I did a lot of that before I knew what the word was. So I'm really glad that I trusted my intuition and that yeah. things are now finally being, you know, rolling out worldwide i mean this is wonderful i'm so excited for children these days really excited oh thank you well thank you for being my very first guest on uh, this teachers talk radio twilight show uh, i'm really really chuffed to get to talk to you again maria and i know that i'm going to be working with you again really yes really. i'm looking forward to, send, to bringing my fish to your school oh we can't wait to see you all right you take you. care thanks thank again bye-bye bye-bye bye. take care Right. So, hello, Shahana. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Can you speak a little bit closer to the microphone? Right. One um, how's that? Is that better? Well, I'm just trying <laughs> to connect because I'm in my car, so I need it to unsync so that I can get it off my car, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Give me a minute. Okay, that sounds a lot better already. Right. I'll just play a little bit of music. And here we So hi Shahana, that's so much better. I can hear you so much better now. So oh, Shahana Knight is uh, my second guest on Teachers Talk Radio. So Shahana, for those of for those listeners who haven't heard from you already, um, can you tell me a little bit about your career so far? Yes. Um, okay, I will. But as always, I really like to talk. So if you feel like my answer is far too long, just tell me to be quiet. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, we've got ages, love. We've got ages. You you knock yourself out. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so my career so far. So I, um, at the moment, I run a mental health and wellbeing service for anyone who doesn't know. So I'm a director of the Mental Health and Wellbeing Service and we do all sorts of things. We work in education, we work in fostering, we work in adoption and we support children through um, interventions like play therapy, creative therapy, art therapy and also with our signature whole school um, mental health and wellbeing courses. But the, it was a journey to get to this point and I think the backstory of the journey is important but actually only one that I've come to realize really in the last few years is being as significant as it is so when I was growing up I um, was in a family with me my brother my mum and my dad and my dad was the head teacher of our local primary school he was the most charismatic wonderful human being you would ever meet like he was literally like the perfect parent in terms of he was inspiring he introduced us to music and nature and it was so fun to be around and he would really light you up and make you feel like you were the most important person in the world and he did that for the children in school as well and so for years and years and years you know my dad would really invest in the children's mental health and well-being in education and even back then and it was you know it was a long long time ago even back then before mental health was even a word you know he 
was really invested in the well-being of his families. So he would go out in the local community. He would support the vulnerable families. He was the first one to think about inclusion. You know, he he included um, a hearing impaired unit within his school. And then he made sure every child in the school could sign so those children were included in the education system and within that school environment. He was really very forward-thinking in his way of working. And it always stemmed to people. Now, in our family, you know, we were so privileged in lots of ways to have a really amazing um, family unit, lots of wonderful memories and special moments and, you know, things that lots of other families at the time didn't didn't do and couldn't do. You know, we went away every single summer holiday for four weeks of the holiday in the caravan with our parents because my dad was off, my mum worked in education, we, we could have them to ourselves. However, when I was about seven, <clears throat> I started to realise that our wonderful family life actually wasn't as wonderful as I thought it was. And the rose-coloured glasses started to come off. My dad had to leave his role as a head teacher because he really struggled with depression and he was also an alcoholic. Now, he had had a history of really, really severe trauma. He... Um, he grew up in Barrow with a very poor family of and a very large family. So he had about six siblings, um, all girls. He had a mum who was single, dad had left. My dad didn't know where his dad had gone and why he'd left. So there was lots of abandonment issues there, especially with him being the only boy. Um, and they were very, very poor. My dad had to drink out of jam jars. They didn't couldn't afford cups and glasses. Um, they worked very much on the breadline, you know, if that. My dad had to sleep with his mum in the same bedroom because there was no space. And as he got older, he was palmed off on other family members to look after him. So he'd spend a year with one family member and then move to another house and another house. Essentially, almost like being in care. And those yeah. experiences really moulded my dad's mental health and well-being and really affected him and as he got older he had lots and lots and lots of life history situations that just added and compounded that feeling of trauma for him and so for me you know as a as a young girl I experienced firsthand what it was like to live with someone who just didn't have the tools to manage their own mental health and my life was pretty scary you wouldn't know from day to day whether um you know, you'd get up and if you would be in a good mood, if you would be drunk, if it would be a day where it would be amazing or a day where it'd be, it'd be scary. And, and there was a lot of an emotional abuse and a lot of insecure attachment developed there. We, we couldn't attach to our parents in a way that felt secure and safe. We often felt unsafe. We often felt like our needs were not met. Our emotional states were not regulated. And as time went on and I grew older, you know, I started to realise that that was trauma. It Honestly, Claire, there was some, even as a teenager, I met my husband when I was 17. And obviously he wasn't my husband then, but I met him then. And um, his family would sit on the sofa and watch TV in the evening under a blanket. And I remember going around to his house at 17 years old and sitting with his family thinking, oh my God, is this what families do? I'd never had that experience. I, did, I just, I never knew what it was like to have a nurturing family that cuddled up under a blanket and it was okay. Like that was normal. So there were loads of developmental gaps in terms of my emotional mental health and well-being that were missing because of a result of my dad's emotional mental health and well-being and so I developed you know coping mechanisms and strategies that I recognize now as basically being survival mechanisms you yeah. know I I have to be liked and I have to be perfect at everything I do because if I'm not perfect I feel immense shame I don't feel 
like a failure or guilt. I feel immense shame that makes me cry to my actual core. And that's because if I wasn't perfect, if I couldn't read everyone's emotional state in the family, and if I couldn't give them what they needed, I would be rejected. You know, I would be met with anger and frustration and ridicule and emotional abuse. And so those things molded me. As I was growing older, I noticed, you know, obviously my mum and dad were in education. So for me, I wanted more than anything to work with children it was it was part of my very core my mum was a childminder she went on to be a manager of nurseries and then a lecturer in um, universities and you know she modeled really good work ethic and both of them modeled you know doing jobs that were for other people basically that supported other people and I always was drawn to children and as I got older and started to work and I, I worked with children really early on I was a nanny as soon as I could be a nanny for everyone's kids in the summer holidays I you know <laughs> ran after school clubs and I volunteered in nurseries for as long as I could before I was able to actually get a job Um, I did all sorts and so I built up my experience really quickly in all those roles I found that I was drawn to the children who were considered naughty, which is the word that was used all the time. And these children I recognised, and I didn't ever, Claire, draw a direct comparison between their lives and my situation because I still didn't quite understand that I'd grown up in trauma. I knew that it was horrible. I knew that things were horrific and but I never had a, you don't know what you don't know. and didn't have a Mm -hmm. comparison for other people's lives, you know, so that was just, our life we just dealt with it and we never talked about it we never shared it with anyone and you know no one ever asked me about my well-being at school and I masked it really well by being a good girl and did everything I was supposed to do so you know by my books I was I was happy almost but even though I know that I wasn't anyway so these children would be coming to my lives and I remember you know children who would wee every day at school and they would smell of wee and the teachers would really struggle to you know manage their behavior is what they would say and you know I would have children who would be angry and be considered bullies and all these other children and I was always drawn to the children who were struggling with emotional and social mental health and had additional needs because of their their backgrounds and I never knew their backgrounds but I always knew that these were not naughty children these are not children who should be rejected and punished for struggling these are children that need our help and our guidance and I knew that even then you know right well early before I'd even really started my career and then so that informed my practice and then I sort of went to uni did psychology at uni and then I trained to become a play therapist straight off the bat from training I was a TA in primary schools I started to deliver play therapy in the um Salford area and and said to the head teacher at the time, like, I'm going to run a business and I'm going to be here and do this with you for a year and then I'm going to leave. And she sold me out to lots of different schools. And then I, after the year, I said, right, I'm going to go on my own now. I wanted to run a business and this is what I'm going to do. So I just developed a therapeutic team and and at the same time as spreading the word about what play therapy was. You know, nobody understood that children could explore their feelings and emotions through play. They thought that they needed to have counselling and talk about their feelings. And I would say, you know, our children, they can't articulate what's happened to them and they don't have the language to understand or the self-awareness to understand what is going on for them. So I was a bit of a pioneer in the area, even then trying to teach people that, you know, children need this this other way of expressing themselves. And then over time, that play through, I, I took a step back because when I first set up the business, I had, in the same year I set it up, I had my first little girl. Then I had a little boy the year after and I was running the business at the same time. And after I'd had my own children, play therapy just didn't feel right. It was too, it was too emotional to 
in be involved in every case and hear all of the stories of these children when I had two babies at home I just mm -hmm. I didn't have yeah. The, yeah the resilience in the same way wasn't there I just I couldn't fathom it anymore but I was growing this team so fast forward I grew a really well-established play therapy team which then became a therapeutic team we've now got 40 therapists that go all the way around the UK and deliver one-to-one -one therapy with children or support vulnerable families in care and and then as I was going through that journey, I started to notice that there was a massive issue between the children who needed the therapeutic support and the, and the people around those children, you know, because it's fine and great to offer therapy to children, but all of these staff around the children, all of the professionals, they didn't have the knowledge and the awareness of what mental health really was. They didn't understand trauma and its impact on children. And so a lot of the things they were doing outside of therapy actually wasn't informing and helping and guiding the child. It was still punishing and rejecting. And so I yeah. saw a massive gap there and I was like, right, I need to home down and start to create some courses. And by this point, I was sitting on a foster care panel. I was working with foster care agencies. So I had that sort of area of knowledge. I'd been a play therapist. I also had been a child in trauma. I'd worked in education. I kind of had all the areas that you would need to really understand what it is we need to learn from all these different perspectives. And so I started to create something called the Therapeutic Teaching Course. And that is a series of six modules. It teaches you everything you need to know in a real practical, tangible way around what mental health actually means on a day-to-day -day basis. Not how we diagnose it and all the issues and conditions, and but actually like how do we support mental health? What do we do? How do we speak to children? How does behavior link to feelings and emotions? How do we guide and teach our children instead of rejecting and punishing? And how do we do all of that and have that as part of our behavior policy, which we don't call it that, we call it a connection policy, and also look at our whole school, our whole school, including our environments. And then that became a therapeutic teaching course that then led on to an award so schools can do an award now to sort of go through all of those modules and underpin the practice in reality and they have to submit evidence and things to show that they're actually doing it they're, they're a bit more accountable than when they're on the course and now we've just started doing um reinventing classrooms which comes from one of the modules so it's all evolved massively and you know it's absolutely amazing but it all started with a little girl who grew up in a house with trauma Wow. Thank you so much for being so open and honest, Shahana. And obviously, you know, I know, I know you quite well. I've met you a few times. You do amazing work in, in my school and I never knew um, that that was your background. So thank you so much for opening up and sharing that with, with me and our listeners. I really appreciate that. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like we've got a lot of similarities because I too um, grew up with trauma and um, I was bereaved. My mum uh, died when I was four and I was raised by my gran. Um, but my brother and I were split up. So my brother was like 14 years older than me. So he went to live with my auntie and I went to live with my gran when, when my mum died. Um, so I, I'd never met my dad. I've never had a kind of father figure in my life. But my brother was very, he had a terrible temper and he was very scary. Um, he was scary to be around. Um, you know, he struggled. He struggled with his own mental health. And um, yeah, I spent a lot of my childhood in fear. And I think that, yeah, we have so many connections. Because like, I, I met my husband at 17 as well. You know, and my husband there. Yeah. And I think the minute that I kind of met his family, it was like, oh, this is what a family home is supposed to be like. 
because yeah. mine had just been so so different to that so kind of empty you know just me and my gran and and so old-fashioned really my, my husband always says I had like a rolled doll type childhood Aww. um you know, <laughs> like a little orphan Annie you know um but yeah it's and it, it's the the trauma and and the things you experience really do shape you because I've always been the same you know I've always had that special connection with children who were looked after children who are bereaved children who um, have special educational needs children who are on free school meals because I was all of those things um, when I was at school myself so I really appreciate you opening up it and sharing that story so It took me a long time, you know. It's only really in the last three years that I've actually, in two years, that I've actually even talked about my own because for a long time, as crazy as it sounds, and with all the professional knowledge that I've got, I never drew the correlation between my own experience and why I started the business, ever. Wow. Yeah, and I I, I guess I'm kind of the same. It's, It's only been recently. But that's the thing about trauma, isn't it? I think, you know, often it takes a good 10 years for you to actually actually recognize it and that's why you know victims of abuse they might just kind of block things out and and not recognize it until they're a lot older I certainly didn't recognize it until I was a lot older and actually um it was my last Ofsted (laughs) it was a real trigger for me and not that it went badly it was just a horrible horrible experience um but yeah and that that kind of it because I wasn't sleeping and I was restless and it, it brought up a lot of yeah. those same kind of anxieties and it's like where has this come from and then when I when I actually went for some counseling myself I realized that it was the trauma of, of what I'd kind of been through with the child and yeah you carry it with you don't you a hundred percent and this is why it's so important to look at our schools because how many children like that are in our schools every day that come in and they sit down and they're expected to learn and do their maths and sit still and all of these things and actually if we're really honest with ourselves the standard the majority of our education system isn't actually geared up to support those children it doesn't even take into consideration a lot of those children's needs and like you've just touched on you know you've got like you were triggered by Ofsted because it made you feel the anxiety and all of the things that you felt when you were younger back in the trauma we have children every day that are triggered by things and that go into survival mode and fight flight freeze and refuse to engage or run off or hide in toilets and our go-to response very often is to punish and reject them. yeah and that's the absolutely. very thing that they that they've had all their life and they don't need and it you know the, the therapeutic kind of approach to schools is looking at well how is that helping to teach them it's not teaching them anything it's not upskilling them in any way it's not helping them understand their feelings and emotions it's not helping them regulate we've really got to do better we've got to do better and that's not just kids with trauma that's every child every child struggles with feelings at some point every child struggles with their emotions like we need to be offering a lot more than we do and the first step is to upskill in all of those professionals around the child because I never got that support and I don't know if you ever got that support as a child like we just had to cope with it and get on with it and you know the fact that we're not even aware of it until we were older is a problem like we should be aware of what triggers us and what our feelings are and be able to manage them in a healthy way and I think for me that starts in school now that should be the school part of the school offer yeah I totally agree I absolutely agree so um so obviously you've talked a lot about your rationale behind your therapeutic classrooms um so can you talk me through your first therapeutic classroom design 
<laughs> yeah. So the therapeutic classroom, just to add context, is part of the six modules. We look at environments in schools because, again, it's whole school approach. So we're, by that point, we've sort of looked at the way that you speak to children, your behaviour policy, all of that. And people have a really good understanding of what trauma-informed really means. You know, it's not just a tick box exercise. It's not a few lessons on PHSE. It's, it's a lot more. It's about your whole ethos and how you embed that in your school. And your environment plays a massive role in that. So I'd been teaching the course for years and it got to a point where I was like, right, I'm getting really frustrated because I can teach the schools to develop the language and I can hear that and see that in the observations and, you know, I can model that and, and teach it in the lessons and things. But what I couldn't do is to show people what I meant by a therapeutic classroom. And at that point... You know, there are signature things about a therapeutic classroom that I'm sure we'll go into, but there are signature things, you know, like lighting and colour schemes and things that people could do and they would take it away and they would implement it. But it was really hard to translate the vision of what a therapeutic room is into a reality for people to then model on. And so in November of last year, I approached one of the schools that was on our award and said, look, I'm getting really frustrated. I really want to help people and I'm very tangible in my delivery. I'm very like practical I want people to go away with exactly what they need to do otherwise I feel like there's not much value in it and you know I don't want to sit and talk about mental health all day and then not have people understand how to help Jack when he needs to kick over a bin or when he's kicked over a bin sorry or you know when there's a child who's dysregulated and, and needs support if you don't know how to handle those children and support them in that moment then the course was a waste of time so well, not a waste of time, but you know what I mean? It's not had the yeah. impact that it needs to have to make an actual difference. And so I felt a little bit like that about my environments. I was a bit like, this isn't having the impact that it needs to have because I've not got a school, I've not got a room. So I approached um, one of the head teachers at the school that I was working in who was doing the award and I said, look, his environments were fantastic already in terms of his breakout spaces and his library area. And I said, you've got it, you've already got the, the therapeutic elements in other areas of his school can I take over one of your classrooms and design a therapeutic classroom? But when I'm asking you to, to redesign a classroom, I'm telling you that I'm going to be taking out plastic chairs. I'm going to be taking out tables. I'm talking about a full rehaul. It's completely challenging the perceptions of what a school classroom should be. Are you up for it? So he was like, oh, well, I've never done it in a classroom before. You know, I, it's really important that children can learn in the rooms and, you know, that the outcomes are good. And I was like, all of those things will still be in place. Um, and I said, I, I really wanted at the time to do a year six room because I felt like that's where we could have the most impact from our first ever room. And I also felt like I didn't want to go too low down in the school where we had to sort of teach them some of the basics around sort of sitting and all of those things for the first project. But he wasn't yeah. brave enough to do the year six classroom. He was like, I can't do year six. Year six, I've got to do stats. I don't want to do year six. I was like, okay. And then he was like, how about year one? And I was like, no, they're too young. And he was like, how about year two? And I was like, no, they're too young. So he said, how about year three? So I said, right, okay. I'll settle at year three. Let's do year three. So I basically, he then handed over the room. And so I... Um, planned all of them and the way that I do all the therapeutic classrooms is that the school will give me a brief of what they want from the room um, and how what their expectations are for the room how the children use it how many children are in it the needs of the children and then I will go away and I will design that room and, and design the vision I then present it to the school talk about why and then they will okay the school then we order all the stuff and then we'll go in and we'll do the makeover now that particular school was really special because at the same time I was recording something called our reinventing classrooms um what was a documentary at the at the beginning which is now um 
a like a program like a series and I said to him I want to I want to document this journey because this is the way that we can really get the word out and to teach people and to start to change perceptions and because it was tangible and visible people can buy into the emotional aspect of something visible much better than they can buy into the, the idea of a course once they're on the course they are inspired and amazed it's fantastic even if I do it like a two-hour twilight but you can't do that for free you know so being able to watch a program where you can get the vibe of why we're doing it, what we're doing it for, what it looks like is is very different. So we filmed the whole process and um, I sat down with them and I said, right, I want to get rid of all plastic tables and all plastic chairs. These are the reasons why they'd already done the course so they understood the ethos. And I was like, I'd like to put high bar tables up against the window. I'd like to bring in a dining table. I'd like to bring in soft seating and a sofa and all these other things. Let's turn off our main lights. And the head teacher was like, right, okay, let's do this. I was like, I don't want a single display on the board. And they really had to embrace what is a massive change and culture shift. And be yeah, brave, brave enough to say to parents, we're going against the norm. Brave enough to say to Offset, who, who actually came in after they'd done the room, to be brave enough to say, no, I don't agree that backboards need to be up you know displays don't need to be up it's a big ask and so yeah he was very brave and he went with it and that's how our first project came about and then um in january we we released the reinventing classrooms program and started to share pictures of the environment and the space and and then you came along and you were our second school and then it just <laughs> snowballed from there but yeah that's that's the story of the first one Oh, fantastic. So for people who are interested, where can they see um, these programs? You know, where can, where can they find them? Yeah, so they're on YouTube at the moment. I mean, hopefully one day they'll be on the BBC. But right now, yeah. they're, on, they're on YouTube. Um, so if they go to sort of TPC, if they type in TPC therapy or even reinventing classrooms in, in YouTube, it will come up. And the first one's on there now. And actually, Claire, your one will be on there in a few weeks' time. That's nearly done. <laughs> um, so we'll be able to watch your journey and your school's um, makeover and things. But yeah, there'll be five episodes on there of the schools that kind of signed up first and then we're going to have a very special episode where it looks at how I design the rooms the ethos around the designs because I'm actually going to be designing a whole building which is so exciting wow oh that's, I mean, that's, that's amazing it, so exciting it is um it's not a school school it's um it's a social emotional and mental health school for teenagers so basically the wow. children who are not able to access mainstream and I think there's like nine rooms downstairs and I'm going to be designing them all so it's really exciting oh so you are going to be mega busy wow oh, honestly yeah so exciting <laughs> so why do you think it's so timely right now why do you think 2020 children in 2020 need this therapeutic approach more than ever yeah I think the thing is that I think we've needed it for a long long time but I yeah. don't think that we were open to these things before really the pandemic and I think yeah. now you know children are coming into school and it's it's you can't not see it you can't not see that you know the children cannot regulate the children are not able to self-regulate they're not able to understand their emotions and feelings you can't not see the anxiety levels in our children now and you know the struggle with transitioning things and that's a direct correlation between their experiences during COVID you know imagine a child in trauma who let's say they've been moved from care home to care home to care home they don't know you know where they're going to be next they they struggle with their behavior because they're struggling with their feelings but nobody's acknowledging that and instead they get met reje with rejection and they have to move on and you know people can't 
manage that and, and that's not for any fault of the person who's trying to support the child at all but we just don't have the skill set as a society for that child they've had rejection after rejection after rejection transition after transition after transition and no control well yeah that's very similar to how the children experienced life in covid you know one yeah. day it was we're in school, you can come in, this is your safe space, this is where you can have consistency, you know, and a lot of children coasted, they were coasting, and they weren't on the high radars, like some of the children, because they had that consistency, then suddenly it was, oh, we're going to close the doors for three weeks, oh, actually, it's three months, oh, actually, it's a year, and then it was, we can come back in, no, you can't come back in, and even for me you know I had one night where my children were so excited to go to school and I had I had a message from the school at six o'clock at night now my children go to bed at half six yes I know it's very early but you know <laughs> parenting. <laughs> therapeutic parenting and all that sleep is really important so it they is. were going to bed and I got this message and I had to tell my children who were just talking about how excited they were for the next day of school and say I'm really sorry guys school's closing again and that consistent disappointment and rejection and you know uh, oh, abandonment for some children even because yeah, school that's just one pocket of how the pandemic affected our children you know and that's a small pocket that some of these kids had to live in some really significantly traumatic experiences because they weren't at school where they were safe and yeah. I think it's on it was unignorable so now I think the perception of people, they're a lot more open to mental health because they can't not see it. You know, it's its not now five children, six children in the class. It's like half the class. And they're, they're I suppose, traditional behaviour management. And I say management with a pinch of salt because we should never manage behaviour. We should always teach children to manage their own behaviour and understand Absolutely. it. But actually, you know, our behaviour management policies, they don't work anymore because yeah. a lot of these children, you know, it's not meeting their emotional needs. And suddenly it's so obvious that it's not. So when I've come along and said, we need classrooms that make children feel emotionally secure. We need classrooms that are trauma informed. We need classrooms that are attachment aware. We need classrooms that are neurodiverse sensitive. We need classrooms that are accessible for children with additional needs or in wheelchairs. And our current classrooms are not giving them these things for all these reasons. And yet here's an example of a room that does do these things for all these reasons. You can't not see the impact just from a photograph. Like people look at a picture and go, oh my God, that is the future. Because it's ticking so many of the boxes in a way that is actually making a real difference to our children and that's not to say that the environment alone is the most important thing the way we teach the way we talk to our children our policies they're all important really yeah. important but we, we're missing a trick if we don't look at our environments so I think the time is now to do that because otherwise Claire we're going to have children even more children who can't access education even more yeah. children who are struggling to regulate what are we going to do open 50 different proofs because yeah exactly you know what I mean yeah. we we have to stop seeing it as the fault of the child and start reflecting back and going this is a this is a fault of the education system as a whole we are failing our children if we have to ask our children to leave because we can't support them that's an issue with us not the child and so I think classroom environments is a, is a really easily accessible inspiring way to slowly start to enforce the change that's actually needed and to start to challenge perceptions and disrupt the norm a little bit in a way that yeah. hopefully you know it is a safe way for people to go oh my god yeah this is what we need to do 
Yeah. Well, I know for me, we've, we're have we just on the journey, aren't we? So we've only done one classroom, but it's really jarring going into the next classroom and yeah. seeing the difference. Like one, It's like the blinkers have come off. Yeah. So you go to your therapeutic classroom, which, you know, I'll be honest, like my teachers want to all be in there for their staff meetings. I want to sit in there and study. <laughs> it's just like a, a calm learning space. It really is you know and and since we've we've been open we've not had any children go into crisis we've not had any children go into meltdown you know the difference is stark um and then going next door which is the exact same footprint of the classroom but with the old furniture and just it just feels so cramped it feels so busy it feels so distracting and you know for our neurodiverse children it must be you know really stressful really yeah, stressful yeah. and just because there's kind of the displays are paired back in um the therapeutic classroom doesn't mean that we don't have anything on the walls you know we have mm-hmm. that beautiful photo wall where every child is is there you know every child can see themselves in their environment and actually the small displays that we do have because we're a catholic school so we have altars in each classroom they really pop now they're really eye-catching and and that it should be that's that's the the focus so we'll still have beautiful children's artwork but it'll be framed and curated mm. and it'll be more like a home environment that's that's how it feels it feels feels much more like a home um and yeah the the, the contrast is really, really stark um i i posted on twitter the other day um something about uh, like preschool readiness skills and i wonder um what you think about this list, Shahana. So it says the most important preschool readiness skills are to self-soothe, self-regulate, build empathy, learn feeling words, create trust with peers and adults, ask for help, navigate disagreements, to problem solve, to identify feelings, to connect with their peers, to share space and items, to build self-confidence, to develop self-control and then to positively express their feelings to others. Now that's a list for preschool readiness mm-hmm. skills, but I would argue that that's actually a list for high school readiness skills as well. What do you think? Yeah, I mean that is that is every child's readiness skills. Like I think the thing is, is okay, great, we should be teaching those things in preschool. But I think what the reality is is that a lot of our children, even in year six, have never been taught those skills, have never had the chance to teach those skills and to learn those skills. And I think that comes down to the way that we respond, you know, and it it does come back to this thing of when children are struggling to self-regulate, when children are struggling to make friends, when children are struggling to be able to speak about their feelings, all the things on that list, they are met with rejection. They are met with being punished or being told off and we jump straight into telling them off about their behavior so you might have a child who doesn't isn't able to articulate their feelings and understand you know their the peers feelings and so they might lash out at a peer when they're frustrated because maybe they feel embarrassed because they haven't won a game and their peer says oh it's dead easy and they they lash out our natural kind of um approaches as adults is to jump into the behavior straight away don't hit him we don't hit in this classroom we need to keep each other safe if you carry on you're going to be sent out or you're not playing a game or you need to go to you know the head teacher's office and we miss every opportunity that there is to teach our children the skills on that list we miss the fact that there was a feeling there 
And then our job as adults is to help the child understand the feeling. Why are we not saying you felt really embarrassed, you didn't win, and you feel like it's a bit of an attack that you've not won, and so you're embarrassed and so you've lashed out. Even that in its tiny, tiny little sentence is so much more empowering for that child because then they understand what their feelings are. And then how do we help them self-regulate? Where in our behaviour policies have we got time for self-regulation? Do we say, you know, you're really struggling to calm down. Let's go and have five minutes where we have a little walk or you can do some colouring or you can listen to music. What we tend to do is see that as a... As, um, a reward and actually it is not a reward to understand how to self-regulate and how to manage your emotions that's a basic human right that we're not teaching our children because we jump straight into you've not done this thing I want you to do and so therefore here's your punishment or here's your consequence and we're missing all of the opportunities to teach in those things. So that's it's all very well and good having them on a lovely little list on a post for Instagram for preschool. But if we're not embedding those skills every day with our children, we're going to have what we have right now. We're going to have year six children who have no idea about their own emotions and feelings. They cannot self-regulate. They've got no emotional intelligence. They don't understand their friendship, their friends, feelings and emotions. And they are not able emotionally intelligently able to go out and flourish in the world and then they're going to struggle in high school and I think that is a skill that we should be embedding into our practice for every single child from the moment that they struggle because when they struggle that's a direct sign to us that they don't know how to do those things and our job is to guide them and teach them how to do those things not to punish them and reject them for not knowing how to do those things absolutely absolutely you're quite right so we've talked a little bit about um, the benefits for special needs children. I mean, at my school at the moment, we've got 23% um, of our population are, are on the special needs register. And I know that's really high compared to the national average of like 12%. So, and that is, you know, all the different areas of need. So it's speech, language, communication, it's cognition and learning. It's also physical, sensory needs as well. Um, and social, emotional, mental health. And the majority of the children in, on our register at, at St. Charles are on for social, emotional, mental health. So we've talked a lot about those children, but what do you think the benefits of this therapeutic approach are for special needs children um, with, with different needs, different additional needs? Yeah, so I think the way that the rooms are designed are designed for every single child's mental health. So it's not it's not just about one yeah. particular child or one certain sort of need. It's it's every single child. And those children, all the children on the sort of SEN register as it's called, will benefit from the room. So we we look at things like, you know, lighting. So we calm down the space, we get rid of bright, harsh strobe lights, and we put lamps in and fairy lights and tea lights and, you know, obviously not with candle flames, but you know, fake little lanterns that light up. And we create a space that feels really calm and welcoming. Removing all the overwhelming backboards and all the colours and just having rooms that look like homes, that's going to allow the ch children to feel emotionally safe and sensory wise. They're not overloaded and bombarded, you know, with all of the different things on the room, not only the things on the room, but the expectations of what those things represent. So it represents that you should know this information or, you know, that these people have done this amazing work. And if you're not on the board, then there's that comparison to those that got on the board and all of the things that we put on the walls that enhances this feeling of being overwhelmed and can really sort of create a sense of internal anxiety which is only enhanced then by a child's sort of sensory processing needs if they've got those as well and I think the way the room is designed is is 
allows for the children to self-soothe, self-regulate, and also be able to sort of calm that internal state down. So they can grab a blanket and rub it and, you know, they're allowed to put it around them if that helps them calm down. The chairs themselves are soft and plush and upholstered, so they can rub the hands on the chair as they're learning and self-soothe that way. They're comfortable, you know, and, and so the room itself meets everyone's needs. There's space for wheelchair users. I remember um, in the summer I did a school um, in Liverpool and we did two two year six rooms and they have massively high levels of SEN children in that school um, and they're, ama they're amazing at meeting the children's needs but their rooms are so cramped because of obviously rectangle tables and plastic chairs there's only so much you can do with moving those pieces of furniture to make space and they had a wheelchair user and all she could do literally Claire was go in the room and park up at the very nearest table and that's as much of the room that she could access all day <laughs> And the, the, yeah, the, what a shame. What a shame. And that's not a reflection on the school. That's a reflection on the design of classrooms, the furniture that's available to us and the programming that we've had as to what we should be putting in our rooms. And it's not inclusive. When After we did our makeover, that girl could move all the way around the room. She could move into the calm area. She could go up against different tables. She could access all the resources. Suddenly, she's got freedom to actually use her space. And so when we think about SEN, you know, we think about children's, like any needs they've got, all children's needs, the rooms help every single child. I'm yet to, I mean, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I'm yet to find something that the room doesn't help with. And if I do yeah. find that thing, we'll make adaptions to make it work. But, you know, all the things that we've got in our school right now that we need to be looking out for, you know, trauma, attachment, sensory processing, neurodiversity, um, children with um, mobility issues, all of those children, all of those children can use these rooms in a way that is inclusive to them and makes them feel safe and secure and ready to learn. Yeah, I, I totally echo that because the the one thing that I've noticed is the just the space, like the yeah. the increase in space because our classrooms just felt so cramped before. Um and it's that furniture that you have because you've always had it, you know, you don't necessarily need it, but you've always had it, so you just carry on. Um and yeah, so just by removing the things like tray beds, yeah. filing cabinets, cupboards that you don't need, um, you know, getting rid of those rectangular tables, getting different size, shape, depth tables, different height tables, um, it really creates that extra floor space and it just makes the room feel so airy. And yeah, for, for wheelchair users, they will be able to, to get around it and access parts of the room that they've never previously been able to access before. It's the difference is intense and I, I'm doing some school to school support and I did a peer review um, of a wonderful school, a really, really lovely school, but the children were packed in like sardines, yeah. there were 34 children in the year three classroom and they literally could not get up and move around, you know, it was just, they couldn't get to the resources they needed because they were just packed, packed in rows and yeah, it was the environment does get overlooked because we just think it's just, you know, teachers are so busy. They've got so much to do. They've got so many children to manage. Um, and actually your environment, it just you just kind of live with it. You know, I, I know from, from taking on my school that things that first annoyed me when I first got there, it's like I've just walked past them now for 10 years yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's just not the way that it is. And it's, it's actually having you coming in with your kind of therapeutic and, and social emotional mental well-being hat on 
to reimagine the space. And the, the first thing you need to do really is to remove every single stick of furniture and only <laughs> back what it is that you really need. And it's not for teachers' convenience. Teachers are always moaning, aren't they, about storage, we've not got enough storage. But actually, if you clear the clutter, you don't need to keep all that storage. Mm -hmm. Teachers are born hoarders. I know I am. <laughs> uh, and actually, you know, if if it's not purposeful or useful for the children, why why you have why are you hanging on to it? Because it might be something that you might use in a display once a year for like harvest or I don't I don't know. Um, but yes, yeah, stripping back um, and yeah just just creating this space it, it's really incredible the, the work you do shahana it really is oh thank you <laughs> so what do you think are the pitfalls for teachers who who are maybe embarking on this what would you warn them against um yeah that's a really good question so i think there are there are a few things with that so the first thing to just really highlight and i know that it's difficult on the radio because we can't show anyone a classroom so if you're on the if you're listening <laughs> right now <laughs> go to youtube type in reinventing classrooms have a look at the classroom scroll to the end or go on twitter and look at mine and claire's classroom environments that we've shared so you can visualize the spaces because like i say once you see it you can't unsee it but i think it's really, really important to not fall into the pit hole of thinking that this is just about making a nice space look good. It really isn't. I think one of my fears, you know, as I roll this out and as it becomes bigger and I want this to be a national change. I want people to look at the therapeutic classrooms approach that I'm doing and say, this is the future of education. We want to make sure we're doing this. And it and it evolves and becomes the, the next national standard. And I yeah. think that is a massive vision. However... It's very easy for schools to see this and go, oh, my God, I can do that and order a load of furniture into the school. And it loses the trauma informed and attachment aware underpinning knowledge that is so vital to every design. I think understanding the why is really, really key. So if you're going to do this. And I'm aware we've not talked about some of the key things. I and mean, we will come on to that, Claire, about what are the key aspects of a therapeutic classroom. So anyone listening can actually go and start to do some of them. But I think if you're going to do any of these things, it's important to understand why. Now, I'm aware that not everyone can go on the course. And, you know, schools own different journeys and in different parts of, you know, their, their awareness of mental health and well-being. And I'm also aware there are lots of schools in the world and people might not eventually even hear about me. They might just have heard about the classroom, therapeutic classroom approach from another school that heard it from, by, from another school, you know, and that's partly what I want. But I think that the pitfall of that is we might find ourselves in five years time with lots of rooms that are called therapeutic classrooms that actually aren't very therapeutic. And I think we need to know the why. So you know, there are some real fundamental things like if we're going to change seating, it needs to be upholstered seating. I don't know if that's even how you say upholstered, but it needs to be <laughs> comfortable seating. So it needs to have, you know, soft padding. It needs to be um, sort of plush to the touch. There's no good you going out and getting a load of dining chairs made of wood because they're still going to be uncomfortable. They're still going to create children's fidgeting and children having a sore bottom and a sore back. And, you know, they're still going to have children swinging on them. So the softness of the chairs is a massive part of the room. And I think that could be a pitfall where we just get very excited about buying things and we're not thinking about the why. So 
absolutely like soft furnishing is important it's for the self-soothing it helps children when they run the hands through them it feels comfortable it looks inviting it looks homey it's a place you want to be in it decreases stress by sitting in those chairs that's then going to turn on the rational thinking brain it's going to stop them being in survival brain where they're in fight flight freeze where they're in protection mode you know all of these things have been considered in the design of the room similarly you know if you're going to have um a seat like a soft sofa area because in every therapeutic room we have somewhere within the room that children can break away to so if they need to regulate if they need to calm down they can go over get a blanket sat on the sofa read a book if they want to opt out of learning and they would usually run out the room and disengage completely or refuse to work they can go and sit on the sofa and they're not engaged but they can hear you they can see the work they can reflect and start to calm down enough to then be engaging again and come back into the space without any barrier if they go out the room it's very difficult to come back in the room again it's very yeah. difficult to come back in and engage if you're just sat on a sofa and you're allowed to do that and then you get up and start working amazing you've you've brought down those barriers but that sofa area it needs to feel homey it needs to feel inviting it's no good having a load of mismatched blankets or old blankets or an old sofa you've bought that maybe was in a house with a dog and isn't quite clean and you know all of those things and I'm just pulling examples but yeah that's important so I think some of the pitfalls are around how we design the room not understanding the why and I think those for me are the biggest ones because it would be heartbreaking you know if we saw these rooms in 10 years time and they've molded and sort of become a version of something that again needs re-looking at you know we want yeah, to get it yeah. right this time yeah um, we've had a really good question here from John Gibb. Thank you, John, um, one of our listeners. It says, are too many classrooms performing for parents, for management or for Ofsted? What yeah, do you think John. about that? Yeah. That <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So let's just talk about display boards again for a minute. Mm -hmm. So honestly, I can't tell you the amount of times I've got into a school and sat down and said, right, so the therapeutic classroom approach is that we don't have backboards. And if they've never done the course before, they're like, what? We need backboards. We need backboards for offset. We need backboards for displays. We need backboards for the children to learn. Like we need to be able to do our work on them. And I'm just, I have to remind them and say, just take a step back. Who are these display boards for? Because I've spoken to hundreds of children who tell me that the display boards make them feel anxious. They can't read the information on them. And that's the truth. Come on, if you're sat in the middle of the yeah. class and there's a display board at the front, you can't read the information on the display board if it's to help you learn. Unless you're allowed to get up and look at it and you're not. You know, so that's an issue. They tell me that it's overwhelming and that it feels like they're being bombarded with information because it's science and maths and English. Some of them tell me they feel sad when their work's not displayed. You know, so it's not helping their learning. It's the way that they're done is very overwhelming, very bright, very chaotic. Essentially, the way a child might feel internally, anxiety, stress, overwhelm, is being literally represented back at them through the environment of the room. And that is not an, a conducive environment to learn. But people tell me all the time that it's for the people who come around. We've got to have display boards because so-and-so needs to see them as part of this project we're doing or we have to have. And I think we just need to remind ourselves. And that's why it's such a good point, John. We've got to remind ourselves that those rooms are for nobody but the child. And Absolutely. if the child isn't learning and the child feels overwhelmed, then I don't care who wants to come in and tick a tick box. It's about the child. And so, yeah, yeah. I think 
part of our fear around changing some of these things is not about our fear for the children it's about our fear for the reprimand of the people who come in and deem what's right for our school and our children and I think that that is a problem you know it's more about displaying something wonderful to evidence we're doing this wonderful thing well that's not helping my child learn so therefore it's not necessary and it's not needed and I think that is a real issue with this but it's something that we can start to change perceptions on quite quickly and I think that as long as we're brave enough to say actually Ofsted visitor this isn't working and these are the reasons why and look at the impact on my children or actually parents come and see this room and look at the difference they're very quickly going to understand the reasons and the rationale and we can start to really change those perceptions yeah and you know as as a head teacher like it doesn't mean that that work isn't going on of course it's going on of course you've still got all the stuff that you would have on a working wall that would impress Ofsted or you know would impress management it's actually all still going ahead but it's just in the children's books and the children are using their books as a resource and it's right in front of them they can read it they don't squint to see the board if they're at the back of the room you know everybody can see the stuff that's right in front of them in their their own their own book so you know all the resources that you have for teaching are still there they're just not up on the walls you know kind of bombarding the children visually and isn't that better isn't that better for children's self-initiated learning to say to themselves oh i'm struggling with this particular spelling for example let me go and look at the book on you know spellings rather than having all the spelling words on the wall they can access information when they know they need it to really help them to learn in a way that's actually accessible to them and that might be like say in a workbook maybe they grab a a book off the shelf when all the stuff that was on the wall is in the book or some schools do it through laptops because the children have access to laptops every lesson some schools have you know laminated sheets where they can go and grab them and bring them over to the table we're not taking those things away what we're doing is we're repurposing them and saying the way that we're doing it isn't helpful and isn't in the child's best interest. And they're telling us that in their behaviour, in the way that they struggle to use the room, all of that. So if we actually listen, there are other ways that we can incorporate those things into the room that are better for the children and have, and I suppose, even better outcomes. It's much better, like you say, Claire, to have a book in front of you and to be able to use the prompts and resources right in front of you than to squint and stare at a board, you know, so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, we still have interactive whiteboards. They are still learning. You know, they will still, we're not taking those away as well. Like, don't panic. (laughs) You know, teachers can still write on whiteboards and and all the rest of it, but it's just that they're really overloaded classrooms. So, on my Twitter, which is um, at Claire Campbell7, I've just uploaded the before and after of our year six classroom that Shahana transformed so that if anybody listening wants to have a look because obviously we're talking about a lot of visual things here um, on the radio it's not the best medium for visual but um, we're trying our best so you can have a look at the before and after pictures so you can see the difference that it makes Um, so yeah so if you want to check out it's um, at Claire Campbell 7 and it's also, the, I'm sure I can post it on my school page, which is at St. Charles RC Pride 1 as well. Um, so, Shahana, what do you think are the main barriers against putting a more therapeutic approach forward? Do you think it's leadership? Um, I think it's knowledge. Yeah, yeah, I'd I agree with knowledge. that. 
Yeah, if you there's two two things with that, isn't there? If you don't know what you don't know, how are you going to change? Yeah, you know, there's that, isn't there? So if you only know to go into an educational magazine and pick out furniture, that's all you're going to do. Um, and and we do just repeat history because that's the way that yeah. it's been done, and we don't have the time to think. Hmm, actually, how do we change this? But we don't also have the the theory and the knowledge, you know. And I think that is a massive barrier. If you are a leader or even a school practitioner who says, "Well, children choose to behave the way that they cho- they behave," um, and if they're choosing to misbehave, then they get sent out. That language and that understanding shows me that they don't quite understand how behavior and mental health are linked together and how yeah. all behavior is is a communication and, and has a feeling at the core of it and so they're probably not going to be open to making a room that is trauma-informed because they might not understand it i've had one person who said to me like they bought into it they were like it's amazing i'm going to do it but my governor said well it was fine for me in the 60s so why is it not fine for the kids now they just need to get on with it like and i think that is a barrier a little bit because that isn't a person who doesn't care about children. That's a person who doesn't understand mental health, well-being, trauma, and the impact it's having on our children every day, and doesn't understand actually how much power we have as educators to make a difference. You know, there's, yeah. there's so much more than just referring children into a service. And don't get me wrong, I have a whole team of therapists. There's a massive place for therapy, but it isn't just about palming our children off on other people and saying, well, we need cams to fix this. We need a prue to fix this. We need a child to have therapy to fix this. We need, we have power in our own, well, our own responses, our own reactions. Every time we speak to a child, every behavior incident that we come across in school is an opportunity to teach. And we're missing those opportunities every single day. So I think the biggest barrier is knowledge. And if we can upskill and teach everyone, to under- truly understand what mental health is and how to tangibly make a difference, then we can really start to change things. And we don't need yeah. to offset all the government to do that. We can do that. You know, we can we can enforce that change from the bottom up. And then maybe at some point when enough of us have done it, then the higher powers that be will listen and go, oh, actually, you know, these things are proving that, you know, suddenly we've got children engaged. Suddenly we've got children not staying you know not staying at home one of my schools said to me a child who constantly refuses to come to school since we changed our classroom has been in every day exactly yeah that is massive I mean if they're not there we can't teach them (laughs) exactly Exactly. so knowledge I think knowledge is the biggest um, barrier and I think if we can start to break that down in a way that feels very tangible and real because again you can go on so many mental health courses and never really understand how it applies to your children and that that in itself is is an issue for me you know literally before I came on this call with you I've just done a two-hour training session with um, a cluster of schools and there was a hundred members of staff in the audience and I did the whole kind of approach but you know very kind of quick through all the different things and um one of the mental health leads came up to me at the end and she said I have been on so many mental health courses because of my role. She said, this is the first one that I've actually learned something. And the first one that I feel like is exactly what we need to do in school. And it's given me all the tools, whereas everything else I've been on, it's just been a load of theory or concepts. And I think, you know, how we approach knowledge is very important and for me if you don't understand how to deal with the children's behavior in the moment then the course that you've been on is not the right course yeah absolutely so um 
a friend of mine who you know very well, who you're doing, doing um, uh, one of your reinventing classrooms for, um, in her school, and I find this really interesting, and I'm thinking of, of adopting a similar policy, is in her behaviour policy, policy, there are now no sanctions. Yeah. And, yeah, obviously, uh, my husband works for the high school where her school um, are, you know, is feeder school. Mm. And obviously, the high school's, behavior policy is completely different it is mm. full of sanctions so what would you what would you say about that what if, what have you um is that something that you do on your training do you talk about trauma-informed behavior policy yeah. and things like that yeah absolutely so we call it a connection and regulation policy oh, I'd, love, I'd love to see one Shahani you have to send me an example oh I will I will <laughs> so connect- email me after the show <laughs> I will do um, so yeah so I, I mean again it's I don't want to I talk too much I get that I talk too much and it's a big question but yes we do we it's called a connection regulation policy and the way that we approach behavior again is not to manage anyone's behavior and it's definitely yeah. not to reject and punish and sanctions and consequences of punishment like time out sending children out making children sit on the floor in another classroom facing the wall which all still happen Um, Mm -hmm. ticks on boards, names on walls, all of those things, they're all anchored in a rejection and disconnection. And the message very much is, if you don't do what we want you to do and you're struggling, then what you're struggling with and your feelings and emotions are not our concern. Actually, if you don't step in line and do what we want you to do, then you're going to be rejected. And nowhere in that policy, as much as a lot of the policies are done from a place of love, none of those policies allow the child to learn about their feelings, their emotions, how that links to their behavior, how to self-regulate and calm down and how to actually make amends. And so we're really missing a trick. So in our policy, our six module course will guide you to all the theory, understanding it, embedding it, sorting out your environments, and then looking at that whole policy across school and all your other policies and saying, okay, how do we now create a policy where all of these things are all encapsulated in the way that you respond to children? And so we look at things like first step. I don't care if Jack's just punched someone in the face. If your first port of call is to straight away jump into behavior management techniques and focus on behavior, you've missed an opportunity to teach Jack why he got so upset and angry and why you punched his friend in the face. And actually what you're doing is you're trying to control the behavior and he's not going to learn anything other than the fact that when he struggles, we can't help. And so what we do is we say, right, first protocol, start thinking about therapeutic language and tell them you were really frustrated. That was really difficult for you. You got really frustrated and angry. And so you lashed out. And so we're giving them those feeling words. We're giving them that insight. You know, you might have a child who refuses to work. So she swears and storms out. Your first port of call could be to go over and go, you don't swear in this school, right? Red card or here's your consequence. Here's your punishment. And again, we've missed the opportunity to teach. Why is she lashed out? Why is she walking out? Is she overwhelmed? Does she feel like the work is something that is making her feel like really anxious because she feels not good enough because she's got intrusive thoughts? Let's tell her that. You're feeling really overwhelmed. You're feeling like you can't do this. And so the easier thing for you to do is to walk out. 
let's give our children the language and then once we've given them the skills instead of punishing and giving them consequences that are about rejection which don't teach them anything let's give them boundaries that help them to make amends and help them to learn if they've ripped down a display can they put the display back together if they've thrown their food on the floor can they help to pick up the food if they've upset a peer let's not force them to say sorry because that's not helpful can they go and get their friend a bottle of a drink of water or a tissue to wipe their tears or you know there are so many other things that we can do and we have to recognize when children are teenagers and they make a mistake they are not going to take their own iphone off themselves as punishment <laughs> you know I mean? so right they're not going to sit themselves in time out and go i've been really bad i'm going to sit in time out so what we need to teach them real life skills they can go and make amends by doing whatever we've taught them in school they and they can have tangible things that they can do to make amends, but we have to teach them that. So punishment yeah. doesn't work. And I think the final thing I would say on that is in our behavior policies, we have to start adding self-regulation time. If we're aware that when children are struggling, when children are feeling threatened or attacked, and that might just be because they can't do their work, or it might be because a friend's fallen out with them, they're going to go into their reptilian survival brain. When they yeah. are in reptilian survival brain, they cannot think reason reflect they've got no empathy for others because they're in survival mode they're not in rational thinking mode and yet we go why have you done that you need to say sorry why do you think how do you think that makes jack feel and ask them all these questions that their brain literally isn't able to to process and we don't give them the opportunity to calm down that brain enough to get into rational brain before we expect them to have a consequence or a boundary and so as part of our connection policy we have to start saying okay child's felt this way and they've done this let me reflect their feelings back and connect with this child in the moment then let me assess the situation does this child need a boundary yeah they probably do the boundary will probably be that i don't know they need to make amends or whatever or it could be a limitation maybe the football has to come in for this part of break because it's dangerous to have it outside but it's not a punishment it's a limitation within the rights of the moment we're not saying you can never have football again it's a 15 minute break and so they lose it for that break but it comes back out at dinner time but where in that are we then saying are they ready to make amends are they ready to reflect on their emotions because if they're not ready there's another piece there about calming down the brain can we give them time and say you're feeling really overwhelmed that's why you've just hit jack let's go and have five minutes to calm down come and do some calming calming coloring come and do some playing with the lego whatever it might be so their brain can start to process calm down regulate understand what's gone on think about the empathy for their friends and then when their boundary comes in so not their sanction or their punishment but their boundary comes in they're going to be more likely to do it because their brain is in a position now it's in rational brain to actually go make amends so our whole policy needs looking at and i think when we look at a lot of that what we really need to do is to start strip stripping back things again that we've done for years ticks on yeah. board all of those things because actually that's going to trigger a lot of our children and that's one of the reasons so many of our children actually struggle you know like if you're even with rewards claire like if you're basing your behavior on a reward system and you're saying okay if you're really good you can have this reward how many children believe that they'll never get that award how many yeah. children are going to sabotage if you do give them an award because suddenly it doesn't fit their version of who they are and it's so scary to suddenly be told you've done amazing today here's a wonderful award guaranteed within an hour that child's going to be having the worst day that they've had in weeks because they have to get some control back they have to 
show you that they're not worthy of that award and they have to sabotage quickly in order to go back to a state of feeling less anxious. Like there are so many ways that we do behavior management that just are not trauma informed. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so we've had a message here from Maria. Um, so Maria was my first guest uh, on the, the show tonight. I and she, she says, this conversation warms my heart. I've been Aww. saying this for most of my 24-year teaching career. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, as educators, we've, we've always known this, mm. but it's about putting it into practice. And for me, the pandemic has really put that sharply into focus because, you know, as I've told you before, Shahana, you know, I did the home visits. I did, um, I was doing food bank deliveries. I was doing um, home learning deliveries. I was like, honestly, during COVID, we were so much more than a school. I was offering marriage counselling. We were offering debt management advice to families, financial support, um, bereavement support, grief counselling. And yeah, we, we saw, you know, I saw for myself the the living conditions of some of our families. And, and yes, we, we are a school of two halves where some families have very nice houses and, you know, lovely gardens and it's well looked after. And then some not so much, you know, lot, lots of children in tiny flats with no green space, no outdoor space. And, you know, the, I think the the lockdowns cause trauma for everybody it's it's not about just special needs children it's about you know every child experienced trauma during the pandemic and I think in we're in a period of recovery now and I think everything that you're saying just makes so much sense and it's so timely yeah so, every child struggles with their feelings as well don't they yeah and I think that's the thing isn't it that's the key to understanding good mental health like if we don't understand our feelings and our emotions and we don't know how that links to our behavior how can we ever really have a good handle on our mental health because that's going to link into our feelings about ourselves our thoughts about ourselves and other people and then ultimately behaviors that cause severe mental health issues like anxiety or you know fear of failure or all these other things and I think you know it's so much more than just I say just it's much more than the children who are are dealing with trauma and even the, the fallout of the pandemic like this is a basic human right for every child to understand and I think that's what we need to start to see this as like this is how we should be offering education to children because every child needs to understand these things about themselves yeah absolutely absolutely well Shahana can you believe that we've talked uh, for oh nearly an hour and a quarter <laughs> um so is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with before we sign off for, for the night? I would just encourage everyone to go and watch the Reinventing Classrooms documentary. Claire's will be on again. Uh, Claire's will be on in a few weeks. And also, if you are an educator and you are excited about this, go on our website, which is www.tpc therapy.co.uk and check out the courses and really think about this in a serious way for the whole school because that's the only way we're going to reinforce change absolutely and where can they find you on social media shahana that is a very good question so i'm on twitter <laughs> <laughs> i'm on twitter and i'm just getting it up really quick because i actually don't know my twitter handle so it's at shahana s-h-a-h-a-n-a underscore tpc so that's mine and then they can find TPC Therapy on Twitter as well at TPC Therapy, TPC underscore therapy. And then we're also 
the same sorts of things tpc on instagram and obviously follow our youtube channel which is tpc therapy fantastic and i know you've got a new facebook page as well do you want to share that I do. So that is. <laughs> Come on, Shahana. Market oh yourself, god. woman. <laughs> oh my god. Right. So it's uh, Facebook. And then I think it's just TPC. Oh, TPC dash therapy limited on Facebook. And if you actually go to, if you search groups for therapeutic classrooms, we post loads of tips and hints in there, best buys, where to get things from, and loads of helpful videos and sort of little things and stuff to keep everyone on track and to inspire people to make real changes. Oh, fantastic. And are you on Instagram, Shahana? Because your classrooms are very Instagrammable. They are, but I've not got a massive Instagrammable following, but it, it's that one is TPC dash reinventing classrooms. And yes, all of our classrooms are on there. So you can see everything all in one place fabulous so thank you so much shahana and apologies to to the um teachers talk radio staff i'm sure i'm going to be sacked after this first episode because i've not done the news i've not done any like fancy jingles i've not used any audio effects i'm an absolutely rubbish uh, radio host but you i have really but i've really really enjoyed talking to you and to maria so thank you maria for our first guest but um thank you shahana and god bless uh, oh, over all right take care over and out Thank you for listening, everybody. Hopefully, I'll see you next week. But I might um, have the slack. <laughs> so, God bless you. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.